if you're a parent or a practitioner, understand this. A behavior analyst has a responsibility to be able to adjust. They have to seek more knowledge to have the ability to better serve the diverse cultures and families they service. At the same time, they have to be mindful of their own biases and challenges that may affect and hinder their service. By that, they should take the appropriate steps to resolve their own personal barriers to ensure their work is not compromised. Behavior analysts have to make efforts to involve their clients, include them when selecting goals and prioritize their best interests. While listening to this podcast, behavior analysts need to act in the best interests of their clients and families by taking the appropriate steps to support their clients to maximize their benefits and do no harm. just started our small business I felt very guilty and I felt very I, I for the first time I felt like maybe I, I should not think that I can live a life of, of me maybe I need to come to terms that I need to be mom period you felt like it was your fault I felt like it, I felt it was my fault I felt it was like if I wouldn't have not worked, or if I would have not brought this person in, like this would have not happened. Um, but this was supposed to be a safe person. Like this is, this is a person that, you know, she should. She didn't care what she did. I shouldn't care about protecting her. She, um, she was a, the sister of someone I work with that is in the field. And she was a provider and she was a mother. She is a mother. So I felt like, and she was assertive. But certain things didn't make sense for me since the beginning. Um, the, the first day that she came to work, she came. We lived in a, in a town home at that time. And she came and we shared with her the, 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 noted, the NOA, which is like the services that need to be provided. And one of them was helping with showering and grooming. And the first thing she did was take her to the shower. And we were really confused. But again, it's like, okay, she's a provider. And I did give her a paper that says that that's one of the services. So maybe that's what she did. Like, I had to think about it twice. Like, what did she okay, just do? Like, like, I would, like, I would ask. Then somehow I went upstairs and, and I guess they came down. And she left to the park with my daughter. And I'm like, wait, that, that doesn't make sense.
Today we have board certified behavior analysts, Carolina Gonzalez and Daniel Mendoza, connecting with Mireya Romero and her story. Remember, it's not the kind of hardship that is most significant, but how we cope with it. When we confront misfortune, tribulation, or disturbance, resilience helps us recover. ABA came at different times, but finally when she came in at the age of, of 11, she's now going to be 17, that's when things really changed because we had an, an amazing team that really advocated for the need um, that we all had of ABA services and most importantly, our daughter. So the first FBA happens and um, I'm, I'm asking for ABA services. The FBA happens, but I'm asking them because I have this child that has all these behaviors of escape and all these behaviors that are now becoming aggressive and they're really taken away from 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 her enjoyment. Um, so that's why I'm asking for them. You know, I'm not asking for them because my daughter's overweight and she likes eating. So then the FBA happens and I'm told, <laughs> I'm told by the um, evaluator that she has many tantrums in, in the areas of food. And I remember feeling like a certain type of way, but this is a, this is an evaluator I trust. And I know that there's like very good intentions, right? So I'm like, okay, you know, we, we can work on that, but I doubt it, you know, I, but we can work on it. I'm, I'm not <laughs> making any promises, but we can work on it. And sure enough, that FBA happens like two months after that, she's diagnosed with type two diabetes. And there's this goal already to work on food. So I'm over here thinking like, no, we're not going to do this. But then again, my daughter's like two X already. She's exhausted all sizes. And then she, you get the diagnosis. That then she's she type gets the diagnosis, type okay. two diabetes. Like after that, FBA is done and the goal is there already. And she gets the diagnosis out of nowhere. Like I took her, I, that day we, we had gone and done regular activities. My sister is tickling her. There's a lump in her stomach because at this point she's so strong. She's so strong so she can pick up anybody. Um, and I remember telling my sister, you know, that lump shouldn't be there. And here comes the hypervigilant parent for good reasons now. Um, and I told my sister, you know, that shouldn't be there. So I'm just going to take her to urgent care. I'm just going to take her to urgent care so that they can tell me what I need to do. And I can plan my week around that. We came out of that hospital two days later. Um, like four, we go in at 6 a.m., at uh, 6 p.m., 4 a.m. they tell me her sugar levels are 640. And what what does that mean? That means she's diabetic. Your sugar should not be more than 100, um, especially fasting. She, I'm the emergency doctor comes in and she's like, um, your daughter's sugar levels are 640. And again, that part of me was, does she have an infection? Like. 
I knew what what it was almost like the Down syndrome diagnosis that one person I'm gonna like gravitate to it and I'm gonna believe that everything's gonna come back okay and then that comes in and I'm never gonna forget like I literally she was asleep in the bed and I was like literally like my head was like next to her like I'm drooling like I wiped that off and 640 and she and he was like and you have an appointment with the endocrinologist at 7 30 a.m here in the hospital so they literally just shift us from the emergency room to endocrinology in the hospital and the endocrinologist comes in at 7 30 and she's I remember her wearing all black and she's like mom she's like I know you know what this means and I'm like no I don't know what it means and she's like she has diabetes and because the sugar was so high it was 640 and her a1c which is the test they do to measure how your blood sugar levels have been the last three months was 14.9 confirming that it was not 640 just that given day it had been like that for the last three months three months minimum she's like if you wouldn't have come last night she would have probably gone into like a diabetic coma because that's how high the sugar was and we went from that room to a little tiny room where we were paired up with a registered nurse who was hispanic and a, a dietitian that was um white and then <laughs> they start telling me like here's the amount of insulin um and then the count the carbs and then you have to count them and then there's time involved and there's measurements and everything all at the same time and i'm thinking like oh my god my daughter's on slack like i have to figure out how to inject her and count the carbs at the same time that i'm taking the time and then i'm writing this down and i remember just shutting down completely shutting down to really take in everything they're telling me. And of course, I know I'm responsible for it. I'm like feeling nauseous because someone had already told me this in good faith of like, mom, this is where these behaviors, you know, they look like they're coming from, let's work on it. And I said, no. And I think out of everything in my daughter's life, I think that was probably one of the things that I felt the guiltiest about. Like I felt so sick. I, but I said, you know, this is not the time to give up. We're going to figure it out. We're going to do it. I forgot about my child being aggressive. I forgot about what we needed to do. I just knew that I needed to be strong because from now on, every time she ate, she was going to require insulin and she was going to require for me to count that and for me to prepare that. And Fortunately, she wasn't hospitalized. She was discharged the same day with a pink backpack full of medication, full of insulin, full of syringes, full of um, testing strips and a glucometer. And mom, by the mail, you're going to get more stuff and you're going to be reporting to a nurse every single day. And you're going to be writing everything down. And that goal that I had told that amazing clinician I don't know I don't think we're going to be able to work with we met it in three months Wow! <laughs> like, we met that goal by far and again once again providers that can accommodate to you it's like whatever we had planned in that initial treatment plan 
was completely modified like I remember sharing with the team that my child had diabetes and I felt that they felt what I what the pain that I was feeling and I remember this clinician like okay let's look at apps <laughs> let's look at apps that can help you carb count can help you do this and can help you do that and you know the amount of support that we were able to get and we were able to meet that goal like there was never a question it just became so real that my daughter's life depended on whatever I did because out of any other diagnoses diabetes is the only diagnosis that if we don't do things I mean for all of them but for diabetes more so is if she's doing well that's because all of us are doing are doing what we need to do but if she's not because she's dependent on us if she's not well with that it's because I did not do my job and within a year and a half we were able to get her off insulin she lost a tremendous amount of weight like she became this entire new person like we were able to work on so many other things because her mood was just so different her behaviors were so different um we everyone matured like we all matured together and you know there was a lot of service providers that um no longer allowed to come in into their programs when she was diagnosed with diabetes because she has a developmental disability intellectual disability and that means that in order to go to any other program now she required a personal assistant or a nurse at the beginning and many other providers out there weren't willing to have that extra set of eyes on my daughter or anywhere else and because they, were, they didn't have the extra set or because they didn't want an extra set on their grounds? They didn't want extra people on their ground. Oh, okay. It, it, it was like a liability. I don't know why. Okay. But she, she at that time, she was attending a vendor doctor's after school program. They didn't allow the nurse to come in. Then she would go to that program to summer. So it almost became a punishment. All the program and services that we had that were outside of therapy, with the exception of school, did not take her in because now she required a nurse to help her um, with the insulin or the glucose and or a personal assistant to just provide that supervision and support and guidance. Like to this day, we have to count her carbohydrates. We have to, um, if she's not feeling well, we do have to check sugar. However, she's not on any type of diabetes medication. It's, it's controlled by carb counting and monitoring. But back then, no one wanted to take her in. And again, there was specific generic resources that said, no, by all means, we're going to figure it out. There was people that, be, that took it upon themselves to say, like, you know what, mom, don't worry about it. I'll, 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 I'll do it. You know, um, so we as, as a family, I also had to learn how to be humble and be appreciative of that because, yes, we have so many rights, so many rights. But sometimes it's about relationships. Sometimes it's about connections. Sometimes as a parent, the provider, you know, I mean, I'm a provider myself. Like some sometimes as a provider, I want to know I can trust that other person, you know, that they're not going to throw me under the bus if something happens. <laughs> um I also learned how to become very humble and appreciate when providers went 
that extra 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 mile that they didn't necessarily have to go so that also taught me how to be appreciative not that I wasn't prior to this but I was so hyper vigilant and I was so afraid that sometimes I, I would create my own problems so I I really had to learn how to be really thankful how to also recognize that this is another condition that my daughter is going to have to live with the rest of her life and that I had to help her be as independent as possible and also help the people working with her feel okay with being of support to her instead of being scared like oh my god this girl's a liability um but yes she's she's doing great she has that in the um, endocrinology clinic it's called the perfect pie a perfect pie meaning that her um, a1c is below six percent which is like almost a person without diabetes yet she continues to have diabetes so we have to continue providing that same amount of care that we provided at the beginning and now she's like cooking and like making her own healthy breakfasts and yes now she um knows the importance of learning how to cook um she has that functional skill of being able to do what what she needs to do if you're able if you tell her what she needs um we're still at a place where we have to help her with the basic things like the counting the reading well i mean not so basic diabetes is not basic at all diabetes can be really complicated if you start you know counting the carbs per meal and how many carbs this has and how many carbs that has and the difference between protein and carbohydrates and fats and and all that other other um part connected to nutrition but she she's open to it and you know she still doesn't know how to read and she well let me correct that in a strength-based way she is learning how to read and she's learning how to count and part of the reason that she doesn't is because the first years of her life were all about behaviors I remember her being in elementary and the teacher the speech therapist telling me mom she has 45 minutes of speech therapy I'm running after her for 40 minutes and I'm engaging with her for five so i'm not even at a place where i can provide a service right and so basically until the behaviors weren't under control then she wasn't able to learn correct Um, and the behaviors were controlled almost until like seventh grade okay which is very limiting and i think you know the fact that you mentioned that is 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 real uh, is real saddening for me just because I I have seen a lot of kids have a lot of behaviors and I also have seen them not be able to access speech therapy, occupational therapy, or any other kind of therapy as a result of the level of support that they need from a behavioral perspective. And then I've also seen um, providers say we can't, um, like speech therapists, not necessarily, and, and, and not because because of them but more so because of the system where they can't have a behaviorist embedded within that service sometimes and sometimes um you know uh to their credit you know speech therapists are not necessarily uh trained in the area of behavior so that further complicates the situation and then you have a child who has behaviors the main barrier is the behaviors in order for them to access the the speech therapy where they would actually be 
um, where the behaviors are a function of a, of lack of language. So you're kind of in a bad situation where the child needs more language so that the behaviors can decrease. And at the same time, when the language instruction is happening, you can't have someone to kind of work on the behaviors so that you simultaneously decrease the, the, the behaviors while increasing the language within the same environment and possibly even, um, uh, you know, improving the overall condition of, or the skills of, of the child. Absolutely. It's like backwards, you know, (laughs) I remember in, at, in the fifth grade, she transitioned to a non-public school. When we received that assessment, the, the psychoeducational assessment, I remember the speech therapist, I mean, the school psychologist coming in and saying, sharing the report and saying she is at a 24 month developmental level and she's in the fifth grade. I remember like feeling like if I was that same feeling of when I came out of the hospital after her diabetes diagnoses and that day I was going to get an award um, for some type of parent involvement and I was actually going to the meeting and then going to the award and it was such a surreal feeling and at the same time it was one of the first times where someone told me where she was at developmentally so as a parent it was like wait a minute I've been attempting to work with my child understandably so not at a fifth grade level but somewhere close to this now someone's telling me that she's at 24 months and that what really motivated me to go back to school and like I think probably that same week after I enrolled into college and I said this is what I have to learn like I have to learn where my daughter is at so I can meet her needs at home and at the same time she transitioned into the non-public we got connected with an amazing ABA um, clinic that conducted an FBA and it's like life changed like we yes the diabetes diagnosis came in yes we saw so many behaviors in the in the in the process but within a month of her being in that non-public what the most restricted environment became the least restricted environment for her it was beautiful like even just her mood she was open to everything she would come home with her hands clean like that's how that that's like the the first thing that my mom noticed she's like oh my god Mireya, viene con las manos limpias. and it was hard to to be a family that lived in south la and send your daughter to the valley like in in my i remember asking myself like if this doesn't work what's next and i knew what was next but i didn't want to think of it and i said nope we're just gonna stick to non-public and we're gonna make it work and it did it worked for her it it created so much change so much empowerment so much opportunity for her to be part of the school she had an amazing teacher like my first experience with with a teacher actually wanting to speak to me about education and not according to the IEP or according to the goals it was just mom um does she eat this (laughs) or mom like look at this what she did today or mom today she participated in this community outing like it was just teacher parent information um 
I got kind of like that ABA provider that you talked about earlier or, or those providers that come into your house and talk to you as opposed to just focusing on your child, but more so talking to you on a regular basis, getting to know you, figuring out what's going on and making sure that they're on the same page with you so that they can continually modify whatever they're doing to make sure it meets yeah. your needs. Because things do change from week to week. Correct. With family. One of the things that happened when she was diagnosed with diabetes, I said, oh my God, school, she was in the non-public I let the teacher know this was a, a, a school that if your child didn't went to school which is really that that's not one situation we've had with with our daughter like unless something's like falling or on fire she's in school uh, so she's always in school but the times that she wasn't we would always get a call from the teacher is she okay is everything okay so she's diagnosed with diabetes and i let the teacher know like i'm concerned about I'm concerned about school and the insulin and, 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 and diabetes and everything. And she's like, Mom, don't you worry. We're going to have a meeting as soon as she's come back. Like, when is she coming back? They scheduled a meeting. And she's like, regarding the nurse, don't worry. She's like, your daughter is very familiar with the nurses because one of the things that she's always said is that she her stomach hurts. So in the morning we would always take her to the nurse so that the nurse would just, you know, take her temperature and, and check her pulse. And the nurse would tell her, you're fine. And she would go back to class. So that was already a routine we had developed with her so that she felt comfortable with this location. She's like, so she's very well aware. And in addition to that, we have a nurse who has diabetes as well and can also follow wow. through with the routine with her. Like yeah. everything was just so embedded into into that piece like a lot of things were normalized from that point on for us so it just helped like smoothen out like what you guys were going through like yeah. having the school just like fully accept you guys and communicate with you on a daily basis correct um yes so those were many of her of her years Eventually, um, we opted to transition her out in the eighth grade out of the non-public because we felt that while we had a stay put on the non-public and she could have very well been there for many of her school years, if not all, um, we felt that as a team, and by means team, the, the obviously the school district, um, her ABA educational team at this point, fifth grade we're now in eighth grade we continue um we continue with aba um because again of of the amount of support that we received of the obviously established need that our daughter has um we learned that there's different ebps within aba and that we don't have to stick one necessarily um, we have to do a lot more further advocacy with, with the um, funding source. So she continues, and she's now made a whole lot of progress, and my husband and I actually decide that we want a community-based placement for her. And that meant bringing her to the public school in our, in our community. And now she's transitioning to high school, so... She's done with elementary, she's done with middle school, and she's now coming to high school, and we want that to be in our community. And it was the scariest thing we've ever done because NBA, um, NPAs are 
are like the heaven, right? But we needed something that was realistic and we felt that our daughter was ready with appropriate support. I mean, services that she's had included special education from moderate to severe, speech services, occupational therapy. Um, she has assistive technology. She has had behavior support from school-based behavior support to non-public educational ABA to currently an instructional aid. Um, she has had adaptive skills therapy as well. She's had adaptive physical education. Like she has all, she has had all the services, but we felt that those services needed to follow her to, to our, our current school. So we make a drastic change and not only for the school setting, but also for home. Um, at this point, our, our support system um, is ready to, to fly away from, from caring for, for the nieta. Um, I mean, she's grown now. You know, grandma's ready to be grandma. Um, and we bring in new people. So two things happen in that entire transition. One, um, the district doesn't listen to us that she needs an, an actual aid for, like, for her because the judgment, the orientation, the memory is not all there. Very functional, but if she doesn't have the support, it's not there. And then the home. We bring in a provider. So she's a recipient of in-home support services. So at school, they, they leave her unattended and she walks away. And she leaves the school by herself and she's found about eight blocks away from like this random man who calls the police thank god um at home during that same time the ihss provider that we bring um starts taking nude pictures of her and posting them on the internet and then our lives are like flipped outside down everything we've worked for at the same time i'm ending a nine-year path with college congratulations i'm thank you i'm finally finally done with that um so i'm a lot more at home yet i actually was in finals when that happened um but she those two those two things happen and they just really for the first time we were beginning to trust I for the first time ever I had brought someone in to work with my daughter um, a person that I'm 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 expecting you know to be safe she's she is a female and working with my daughter under a state service um, and we're placing her in a public school, feeling very empowered that this is the right choice because soon she'll transition to adulthood and we want her to be in the community and know her community. And this, then this happens and it's, it's happening all at the same time and it's so hard to grasp. Um, I had never in my life from the point that not even, I mean, I just had never in my life been able to not work. I've never been on a disability. I've never been on FMLA. Um, 
I've never taken a leave of anything and this is the first time that I, ha I, I feel the need to not be at work. I feel the need to be at my, with my daughter. Like all this time, when she was small, she was always in like school transportation. When she went to the after school um, program, she was in a, in a vendor transportation when during summer and she attended generic services, she was in vendor. She was always very independent because we come from a very tiny family. So I have to prepare my daughter for when I'm not here. Um, and normalize that and I would always ask like Mireya you're not scared that they're gonna do something to her and I would always say like I can't live like I can't live being scared I I mean I'm only we're only a very small family this is her life like this is her journey and I have to prepare her for her journey and when this happened and I had just started our small business I felt very guilty and I felt very, I, I, for the first time, I felt like maybe I, I should not think that I can live a life of, of me. Maybe I need to come to terms that I need to be mom, period. You felt like it was your fault. I felt like, it, I felt it was my fault. I felt it was like, if I wouldn't have not worked, or if I would have not brought this person in like this would have not happened um but this was supposed to be a safe person like this is this is a person that you know she should she didn't care what she did I shouldn't care about protecting her she um she was a, the sister of someone I work with that is in the field and she was a provider and she was a mother she is a mother so I felt like, and she was assertive, but certain things didn't make sense for me since the beginning. Um, the The first day that she came to work, she came. We lived in a in a townhome at that time, and she came and we shared with her the 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 noted the NOA, which is like the services that need to be provided. And one of them was helping with showering and grooming. And the first thing she did was take her to the shower. And we were really confused. But again, it's like, okay, she's a provider. And I did give her a paper that says that that's one of the services. So maybe that's what she did. Like, I had to think about it twice. Like, what did she okay, just do? Like, like, I wouldn't, like, I would ask. Then somehow I went upstairs and, and I guess they came down. And she left to the park with my daughter. And I'm like, wait, that, that doesn't make sense. Like, she doesn't know her. And I even told my, my husband, I'm like, good luck. Like, how do you do that? And I remember calling and I didn't get a response. And then she, like, quickly came back because while in the park, a little boy didn't move from the apparatus. So my daughter got him and threw him off the apparatus because he didn't listen to her so, and then I rem like so it was really confusing and eventually all of that led led to a call while I was at work it was a blocked number so I work in the field myself um and I saw that block call and I'm like oh maybe it's it's um maybe it's a provider that I I just had followed up with 
And it was this random woman and said, you know, I have information regarding your daughter and I need to see you now. And I'm like, my daughter? And I'm like, okay, you have my daughter's name and you have my number. And I remember telling that person, I said, you know, if you have my daughter's name and you have my direct number, I'm going to assume that you're calling me in good faith. So where do you know? Like, she didn't want to give me any details. So I felt like I had to do <laughs> Socratic questioning. Like, I had to question her. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, okay, so where do you know my daughter from? And, like, my head said, school. Like, someone's doing something to her at school. She was still in a non-public. And um, she said, no, I know her from from this person. And she named the provider, the IHSS worker. And she named the provider, and um, I said, okay, I'll, I'll see you right now. And I met with her in the McDonald's. Um, I looked in the McDonald's where the cameras were at, and I literally went to sit in front of the camera. And she just um, took out her phone and started showing me all these nude images of my child. Like, it was nauseating and many messages. Um, lot of text messages uh things that i would message the provider um i I was i was working full-time and i was going to school at night my last class so five days out of the week i would have that math class it was math torture for me so two days out of the week i would go to downtown to the college and while I was in, in school, some behavior started happening that were not relevant to this time being. Like, those would have been appropriate or understandable back then, but not in the present. Like, there was things that didn't make sense. Like, she was naked in the kitchen, so having a tantrum. Like, how do you get from where the restroom is at to the kitchen? Like, that doesn't make sense. Like, in my head, we're like, okay, wait a minute. So... ABA has showed me that there's an antecedent to every behavior. So what was the antecedent to being in the kitchen nude? Like, it didn't make sense. But again, like, who was I to question a, a provider? Um, so there was times where I would message her like, oh, you know, did she take her medication? Uh, my daughter takes medication since she was seven years old. Um, okay, did she take her medication? Like, how is she doing? So all those messages were posted in the internet of like, oh my God, this mom is so annoying. And she would post those text messages. And that's how my number was identified by this person. So first it started off by posting this messages. Then it was by posting her nude images. And that was heartbreaking. It was like one of the scariest things we've ever done. It was a complete invasion of privacy. There was also various demeaning um messages regarding my daughter like there's no control in terms of like okay i need to pick my nose i'm not going to go to the restroom i'm just going to pick it so any little thing was used against her to either make fun of her or expose her and that happened it was during the weekday it was um september 20th um and immediately she was removed and i remember telling myself it was it was that critical thinking part of like i'm 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 broken 
and my daughter has just been taken advantage of and I need to protect her, but I also need to get her help. And how do I not do this by being hypervigilant and having someone question me about me again? And it just took me to where we had worked so far to get to like the beginning. And I remember saying, nope, first things first. I went to the police station and I made the report. That was a Thursday. Um, Friday, she had an appointment with the, with the endocrinology clinic. However, the way that her services are set up is that she sees the endocrinologist See, she sees the psychologist um, then she sees the registered nurse she sees a nurse and we see a social worker and I said okay today I'm taking her to the police to make the report and then I'll follow through with whatever they need and tomorrow we're going to go to endocrinology and I'll ask to speak to the psychologist so that the psychologist can guide me in what I need and first and foremost her mental health my daughter's mental health was like at the top of my priorities um i said you know the authorities are going to deal with with the mal intentions and poor judgment of this person and i'm gonna i'm gonna take care of my child's mental health and her physical health and fortunately um i have really good rapport with her medical team and the psychologist was one of my was one of my she, she was my support person. She not only guided me to go and, and break this news to the endocrinologist who was actually that day using my daughter's um, diabetes management to share with providers that were coming from Asia, <laughs> um, but was there to support me, was there to support me. And then they were able to link me back to my daughter's pediatrician and connect us with um, if, eventually leading to um, being able to access mental health services. Um, and that, that, was, that was so difficult. I remember October 15 was um, her first time that she got her first forensic exam. Uh, that itself was a traumatic experience, but it was required. It was so confusing to my daughter. And then we went for the second one. Yeah, and then we went for mental health services. Um, but then she required to be evaluated to even identify if she would benefit from mental health services because of her intellectual disability. And again, because of how much we had prepared her in how much she had participated in, in other services, she was able to access mental health services too. The, for the first time, um, she started, so we were going through all the steps in, in, again, we, my daughter has ABA the entire week. So the ABA team is living this with us while we're, we're living it. And we're, we're trying to like build, build her up, you know, explain to her why this person that was supposed to take care of her is all of a sudden not coming in anymore. 
And then we're trying to figure out, like, now who's going to take care of her, you know, because we have, like, that's that's my priority. So, no, I I mean, taking care of me was not an option. I've, I've always been a go-doer. Like, I don't, people don't have to tell me what I need to do, but when they do, like, you're only going to tell me once. And I'm going to, like, I kind of... In my, I, I, I've been, I've trained myself to like, you're going to do it and you're going to do it good. And to me, when all of that happened, it was her mental health. I need to take care of her mental health. I need to protect her from this. This is my first time that I'm ever sharing that in public um, or through a platform. I've always known it's important. It needs to be talked about because it, it, it happens. It, I mean, it happened to us with a person that we were we were supposed to trust. I think you talking about it and even to a certain degree, um, not necessarily uh, uh, even like seeking help after that. I think that's very indicative of, of cultural norms where, you know, speci- I, I know, you know, Latin American people, El Salvador, my mom is, is El Salvadorian, She's been through a lot, but she's never sought any kind of like help. And it's, I don't know that it's a stigma because at least within my family, um, I don't know that it's a, it's a stigma. It's more so of the way we face life, the way I face life, the way my mom faces life, the way a lot of Latin American people face life is that there, there are barriers and you have to get past them. And it just, it's just a norm. It's just another thing. It's like, okay, this happened. How are we going to deal with it? We got to get past it. And we are very, we are very caring of others. And sometimes in focusing on that, we don't necessarily uh, focus on ourselves. Um, I don't know that I can say it's a good or a bad thing, but what I can say, it's, it's, it's essentially kind of like a form. It is resilience. Basically you, it's, it's what you, it's what's put in your path. You deal with it, you get through it and then you, you keep it moving. Um, at the same time, I do understand because, you know, from my own personal experience with my mom and just, you know, kind of watching her go through different things, I know that it does impact. And sometimes people don't know, you know, because you're carrying something like you're carrying something with you, you're carrying like some sort of like psychological baggage. And and I think that is a specific consideration that, you know, providers need to have when coming into somebody's house, you know the first traumatic event that my mom went through, you know, uh, or, you know, coming to this country was just even crossing the border. That in itself is traumatic, you know, and then having to adapt to a whole new environment that in itself is traumatic, you know, having to learn the language, not being able to be as adaptable, being taken advantage of as a low wage worker and like kind of working under the table and just being under the stress of that. And you have to interact with all of these systems. And, and then on top of that, these other things kind of just happen and you just kind of have to keep on pushing forward because sometimes you don't even have time because if you try to take time to, you know, deal with these other things, then you're not necessarily going to take, you're not going to have the time to focus on, on your child or focus on really, I'm not going to say what's most important, but I guess what, what an individual determines to be most important at that moment. I think that's, that was a really hard topic to, to talk about. I, you know. I commend you for for wanting to talk about it and for even bringing it up. And I think the takeaway that people can have from that is 
that there is an added layer of concern that parents have to deal with when you're raising a child with a developmental disability in the sense that this person doesn't, the, the child that you're raising um, may not necessarily have the skills to uh, protect themselves and advocate for themselves and even report what's been going on. So, um, and it's a, I think it's a constant vulnerability that um, parents possibly think about. So that in itself, like it's, 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 it's that kind of like that psychological baggage that you have to carry, you know, day in and day out. So, you know, just, we have to be, you know, it's, it's the more you're carrying, the more we have, people have to be sensitive to it just those, because it's not going to change. Two, if life events, um, you know, her first, it was the, 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 the abuse. And then it was the, the walking out of school being found um eight blocks away from the school that that really triggered for everyone and it also changed the way that we did things in our family for a long time we were always told you know across board and this is not from one specific discipline it's just no no you have to give her space no no you have to let her do things no no you have to let her learn uh, mom you you need to <laughs> This is why I can't give her space. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because they're going to tear up the house. Um, like, for a long time, I was told that. So, I was out in my head, I was always like, no, I have to give her space. No, I have to allow for a provider to come in. No, I have to do this. So, when all of that happened, I was like, all right. All of you did it your way already. Now, we're going to do it our way. And that really empowered me to feel a lot more empowered about my choices as a parent like I guide services not I'm the service I'm not the the power to be here but I I really learned that it was okay to it was okay for me to be okay with my choices as a parent as opposed to feeling like I always had to follow everyone's lead except mine um and when I did that, I learned that there was team, the, our team willing to to walk that road with me. Like I remember, um, soon after that happened, someone brought it to my attention, and they said, "Mireya, why don't?" I said my name. They said, "Why don't you um, put cameras in the house?" And I was like, "Really?" okay like this is my house like yes that's okay but I didn't feel like that was okay and I I recalled a, a another mom that has a, a, a loved one with special needs that years back she had said yeah I have cameras on everywhere in my house I remember being in a training with that parent and the parent showing me like everything that was going on in her house like miles away and me feeling like, no, I can't do that. Like that's, you know, that's, that's, I just can't do that. And when this happened, I called that parent. And I said, can you talk to me a little bit more about cameras? Because I feel like I'm about to invade everyone's privacy. And she said, well, you're not going to have them in the bathroom. <laughs> 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 They're going to be for you to be okay. And just, if that's something that you want to do, yes, you can do it. And I remember bringing it to the team and the team was like, yes, 
that's what that's what you want to do, right. mom. This is your house. That's okay. Yeah. You're okay with it. We're okay with it. And and it wasn't even about the fact that that they had to be okay with it or I had to be okay. It was just with that level of receptiveness of like, no, mom, that's that's too much. Like, never question me. And they were so supportive during that process. As a parent, I also chose what systems I wanted wanted to be aware of what happened and what systems I didn't. And the systems that are aware respected my choice. And my first my first go-to was making sure my daughter got her mental health services. And while she was getting mental health services and things began a lot more real, I started having episodes of um, sleep paralysis, which is you go to sleep and you wake you wake up, but your body doesn't, your your mind doesn't. You're like stiff and it's very stressful. That episodes don't last more than, than 60 seconds. And... In one of my sessions, I, I happened to brought it, bring it up to my daughter's um, clinician. And they said, you know, mom, would you consider mental health services for yourself? Would you consider your own time? Would you consider your own support? And after so many years, I was finally ready for that. And I continued to have them. Um, while all this happened, I would have up to six per night episodes of sleep paralysis um when prior to this as a child i actually did develop them because i experienced my own essay um but they were like once every two years it was random like the last episode i probably had was in 2012 and when this happened to my daughter it was six per night like six and because everything happened in my bedroom i didn't sleep in my bedroom for many months um, so they would always happen while I slept on the couch. And um, the house was very plain. The walls were very white. It felt very dirty because of what had happened. And now they're very different. They're very full <laughs> of green, of everything, um, of a lot of love in this family because we had the help. Um, it wasn't more about I don't treat this and I don't treat that or I don't talk about this or I don't talk about that. It's like... All the systems just kind of came together for us, and that was so helpful. That that was that 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 continuation of services. Um, we learned a lot. We have learned a lot. I think you brought up two very good points. I think number one was um, taking charge and you dictating the direction of, of therapy, as opposed to um, you being told. Um, and then the second part is, you know, there's a lot of families. Uh, that have children with developmental disabilities that experience higher stress and as a result of higher stress and the higher kind of responsibilities and kind of everything that you have to go through, um, a, a need for mental health and mental health support. So I think accessing that that mental health or just even like preemptively a, uh, accessing it and finding someone that you that can support you, um, whether it be a group or a professional, I think is is also really healthy. Um, I wanted to ask you, or we wanted to ask you this, um, what advice would you give ABA providers coming into a Latin American home? I guess in this situation specifically, uh, more so a Salvadorian, because that's more where you're rooted. Um, what are some things that you could tell an ABA provider of, these are some things that you could do to succeed within this type of environment? 
acknowledge the the family strengths the the strengths the culture the leadership within the family um the character of of each individual within the family um we're all very different i mean independent of of culture but being able to acknowledge the the character of the parent and by i say by by character is that 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 innate leadership skills of that parent um what they're comfortable with what they are not comfortable um for us we're parenting children with a developmental disability there's nothing we could have done to prevent that so we're learning like i didn't traumatize my child you know she was born with down syndrome and it almost felt like i was blamed for the fact that she had down syndrome and now i needed to learn what i wouldn't have been expected to learn had she had not have a diagnosis um so be mindful of the parents strengths of of their leadership skills of their um interest of their openness um to the fact that they're okay with bringing a person into their home um and so this is this is the last question that we have and we've been asking everyone uh, we do feel that it's very valuable because there's a lot of people that are starting on their journey of of having a child with a different with a diagnosis um, what are three things that you would tell a parent or a caregiver that is at the beginning of their journey and of having a child diagnosed with a developmental disability um, that could help them survive or help them put them in a good frame of mind and really uh, not necessarily experience some of the same barriers that you might have experienced and so that they can be more successful at, in, at a quicker amount of time because sometimes essentially learning from other people is 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 very is probably is probably the best way of learning and and, and um, especially people that have been through the same struggles and the same kind of systems um that you're essentially going to go through um yeah what would you say to, to to that parent um three things it's the first one it's okay the it's it's okay for us to feel the way we need to we might be totally okay with our child's diagnosis. We might be sad about what's going on. We might be upset. Whatever emotion we're feeling, it's okay. It's important to, to be human and not feel like we're in control of every single situation because the fact is, is that we're probably living 20 things that another parent who does not have a child with special need is not living. And we are, and we're like, doing a pretty good damn job with it <laughs> um, and we're making it happen um, family support friend support um, a special need community is so important um, being able to learn from other families from other parents has been has, has been the way that I've navigated through all of this like that's my trust my community that I can trust because they've lived it and if they haven't yet they're willing to live it with me and I can trust them like they're not gonna call DCFS on me you know 
they're gonna they're gonna be a support they're gonna be there with me um so that is 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 so important you know family because they're they're there with us but a community a special needs community is 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 just embraces you in another type of way and the other part is concrete supports like there's no way around it and when I say concrete support is art the helping the helping disciplines the helping fields like there to me I don't know that we would be where we're at without our ABA team we would not be here we would not be here without our mental health team my daughter has had the the same pediatrician since she was 18 months she's gonna be 17 years that woman has she cried with me the day she had to do the initial vaginal exam like that's how how much she's there concrete supports there's no way around it like we've been part of the same regional center i've made it a point to be part of the same regional center since the day she was born and those are our concrete supports like there's no way around it we we our children our our loved ones thrive from that support so it is important it's just how we decide to utilize the services that makes the difference and i think those would be my my three takeaways from my experience to to this point with my with my developing señorita who's also lived you know regardless of of the 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 difficulties and the barriers she has had an amazing you know she's had an amazing life she's very loved she has a village she had a quinceanera she's baptized she had her first communion her confirmation she did her um quinceanera in our backyard she had a birthday parade last year in the middle of the pandemic i mean she's, <laughs> she's pretty much experienced um everything i didn't and she surpassed me i dropped out of school at the 10th grade she is going to be ending her 10th grade this year so in my eyes she has surpassed my level of of education she has surpassed and done by far more than whatever i did in, in her year at, at her age i was like a few months away from being pregnant so i'm pretty darn proud of my kid <laughs> i think that you are honestly like very inspirational oh, thank you. and anyone hearing your story is going to have so much strength because of this thank you you are honestly you're just amazing you're an amazing mother amazing human being i feel very privileged to know you oh. Thank you for tuning in. You just listened to Resilience Podcast, Episode 3, Part 2, with Mireya Romero, hosting Daniel Mendoza and myself, Carolina Gonzalez. In today's podcast, Mireya brought up an important matter about crime against people with special needs. According to the Borough of Justice, the statistics from 2009 to 2015, the rate of assault against people with special needs were at least twice as likely to be victims of violent victimizations compared to people without special needs. These violent victimizations include sexual assault, rape, robbery, aggravated assault, and simple assaults. As practitioners, we should always strive to understand the family's values, their culture, 
and the family's experience. Clinical teams must always consider communication skills, adaptive skills, and safety skills in the treatment package with the goal of ensuring clients may remain as safe as possible. We welcome practitioners listening to share this podcast with families and other providers. If you're a parent and would like to share your story, you can reach us at info at behavioral-analytics.net. Thank you for listening to Resilience Podcast. If you would like to continue to hear our family stories, a new episode is released every two weeks.